Georges is a photographer and filmmaker whose career in humanitarian work has spanned over 25 years. He's documented indigenous and tribal cultures around the world in an effort to portray the lives they live and the challenges they face. His work is exhibited in museums and galleries worldwide, and his award-winning books, which have been published in four languages, include Tibetan Portrait, Enduring Spirit, Women Empowered, and Tibet Culture on the Edge. He has hosted television documentaries on indigenous cultures for the Discovery Channel and National Geographic. Phil also lectures and teaches internationally. Phil's 2017 project, Crazy Wise, explores cultural differences with respect to consciousness, mental illness, and the relevance of shamanic traditional practices and beliefs to those of us living in the modern world. And it was this film of his that I watched immediately before speaking with him. Without further introduction, I give you Phil Borges. Got so, it. So where are you, where are you uh, zooming in from? I'm in Seattle right now. Uh, this is my home base. Okay. I've been for 30 years. Okay, cool. And is this specifically your studio there? Uh, yes, um, but my studio, yes, it is my studio. Um, back here, let me turn on some lights so you can see. Sure. Um, when I first built the place 20 years ago, Behind me was going to be my dark room, hmm. but that was when digital took over, <laughs> and I I um, never did use it for a dark room. So I do my printing back there on a printer, and 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 right now I'm doing a lot of writing, so that's what I'm doing back there mostly. Okay. And you know what, Phil? I'm just gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna press pause on the recording real quick. I'm gonna get, yeah. I'm gonna put a lamp right here so you can see me better. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you don't mind, hold on one second. Yeah, no, that'd be good. Okay. <laughs> somebody to talk to. Yeah. Right. Let's resume. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So you built a house 20 years ago. You had plans of of having a a dark room there. Yeah, and um, it was about that time. So we designed it like 25 years ago because mm. it's such a remodel we added a floor onto the house and yeah this is going to be my studio on this direction over here okay I don't know if you can see it with the light the way it is and i saw was, a ladder going up and, and a plant oh <laughs> yeah maybe it's pretty cool oh yeah wow yeah there's a great big room there yeah so that was going to be it but you know all my work is done on on location so hmm. using the studio, I, every once in a while, I would do a little photography in a studio. But um, so I've never really used this as a studio. Okay. Other than just doing the office work and, you know, our employees would be around here. And, and that's what hmm. we did here is mostly what we did in terms of keeping the website up and that sort of thing. Interesting. Um, I'd be interested to come back to that in a, maybe in a minute or two. Um, let me just jot down a note here. So as we mentioned offline, I watched your documentary Crazy Wise last night. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also just fascinated in 
all the prerequisites uh, of interest that probably would be required to make a film like that. First of all, it was really great and I enjoyed it. Uh, and, and I'm honored that you would even take the time to talk to me about it. <clears throat> but I'm really curious of like, <clears throat> I'm curious how many things would have needed to take place before you make a film like that. And of course, in the film, you sort of mentioned some of those, but even, you know, endeavoring to make a documentary would probably require <laughs> a few years of life experience messing around with those things before you even like launch into a career with that. So did you start out with photography? Did you start out with, with video? Mm. What's the origin story there? Yeah. Well, the origin story in terms of the technical, what I it was, I started with photography and moved into film. But really, the origin story of Crazy Wise is I spent 25 years documenting the human rights issues that indigenous and tribal peoples were facing around the world. And while I was doing that for different NGOs like Amnesty International and the UN and CARE and various people, I started meeting the healers and visionaries in those communities. Mm. And I um, just by chance ran, I would in the beginning, it was just by chance, but then I systematically started asking when I would go into a community, who are your healers, who are your visionaries? And mainly because the first person I ran into was the Dalai Lama's oracle, the nature mm. oracle. And he was a 30-year-old monk who um, goes into a trance-like state, which I watched him do. And what we would call um, channels information from a spirit entity that they call, the Tibetans call the Nechung oracle. And so this monk is able to go into a trance-like state and do that. Well, anyway, I was asking him, how did you start this? How are you elected to do this? Yeah. And he basically told me the symptoms he was having um, was hearing voices, having um, extreme mood swings and personality changes. And he was a very, very mild-mannered guy and um he described things that i would put in the category of a psychosis or even a psychotic break and so that's where it started really and then a couple of years later i was in kenya doing another project for amnesty and i ran into a woman who was known as the community predictor. It was in the Samburu tribe of northern Kenya. And she had a very similar story, that when she was 14, she started hearing voices, having visions, hmm. feeling she was, a lot of the people told me they felt they were dying when they were going through this, this um, process. And so she thought she was dying. She was very ill. Her grandmother took her aside and told her she had a very special sensitivity, and that that sensitivity, if she learned how to manage it, would be very useful to the tribe. And when I met her, she was the healer and what they called predictor of the tribe. 
So at that point, I started just, you know, when I would go into another community, ask, who are your healers? Who are your visionaries? Hmm. And I ended up interviewing around 45 different, what we call shaman around the world. And I would say most of them had a similar story. Sometimes it was, I was born into it. My grandfather did this, my father did it, and now I'm doing it. Um, and it was sort of passed down in the lineage. Hmm. There were a few times that they said it came on with a very serious illness, like I almost died of a fever. And during that time, I had these visions, and, and then the people knew I had that. The people in my community, my family knew that I had that capability. So that was very um, interesting to me. And, sure. and it of didn't course. turn into a film until, because it was just kind of a sidelight I was doing to my other work, which was mostly centered around the human rights issues. And um, I met a kid here in Seattle who I say a kid, he was 25 years old, and he had a psychotic break, and he had this interesting story of, it was Adam in the film that you saw, mm. this interesting story of having this break where he was sent to the hospital and put on medications and had been on medications for four years and having all sorts of horrible side effects with the medications, he wasn't doing well on them. And he finally got so disgusted with his treatment that he cut off all his med medication at once and did a Vipassana meditation retreat, which is a 10-day silent meditation retreat, very difficult to do. I ended up doing one, and I can testify that it's not easy to meditate for 10 to 12 hours a day for 10 straight days without speaking or looking anyone in the speaking to anyone or looking at anyone in the eyes. And um, but for Adam, that stabilized him, and that's when I met him. He had that story, so I just became very interested in him and started following him. And by following him, I was interviewing him, oh, about every two weeks. And, and then it turned into the story you saw. Wow. Well, I've, I'm trying to jot down all my questions here. There's probably a thousand threads I could pull on. The, the first would be when, when you started that side um, interest, the sort of interviewing the shaman, what do you think motivated you at first? Did you sort of know that, oh, wow, like, um, a lot of these tribes or groups of people seem to have this. This is an important fixture, and it would be important for me to meet these people. Were you curious um, solely? Or I think in the film, you sort of reference a degree of skepticism. I forget which tribe that was for specifically, but what, what do you think was sort of motivating for you? I mean, to interview 45 shaman is no, it, it seems hardly accidental at some point, right? Well, it kind of was accidental. I mean, mm. in the beginning, when I um, first was invited to go in and watch the Nechung Oracle, or the 30-year-old monk, whose name was Tuptim Nordu, 
and he was known in Tibet as a Kutin. And the Kutin is a person who has the ability to go into these states of consciousness where they contact the unseen world. We would call it the spirit world. And that was a total, that was by chance. I was in Dharamsala, the little town uh, where the Dalai Lama lives in India now. You know, he lives in exile. He, was, he had to flee from Tibet hmm. in 1959. But anyway, I was there interviewing all the Tibetan refugees coming into town. And I wasn't there to meet a shaman or to meet the oracle. Sure. But a friend of mine um, who uh, is a columnist for the Daily Telegraph in London uh, invited me to go and watch this um, Kutin go into trance in the ceremony. And that's where it started. And then two days later, we got to interview him and he told us his story. Hmm. And it was very interesting to me. It was nothing I'd heard before. But yes, I was skeptical when I saw him. When he went into trance, um, it was very, you know, was in this monastery with 40 monks, about 40 monks, small monastery. They started chanting and beating their drums and they play these horns and, and they put this heavy hat on his head. They said it weighed about 50 to 60 pounds hmm. and very ornate, put it on his head and immediately his eyes shut, his head went back and then he started talking in a very high pitched voice. And the monks around him, there were about three or four monks right next to him. They were writing everything he was saying. And then he collapsed and they had to carry him out of the room. Hmm. And I thought, is this a performance? You know, I, yeah, I was skeptical. Sure. I, I, I'd, I'd never seen anything like, like it. And we ended up interviewing him uh, two days later. And I was kind of uh, <laughs> expecting to see sort of a big personality, you know, a grand performance type guy. Mm. Uh, but it was a very meek. He was very meek and quiet. And he told us his story. And it, it, we had a translator. He spoke a bit of English, but the translator was mostly filling in. And he very humble, meek guy telling a story. He said, yeah, I was very frightened when it first happened. And, and I didn't know what to think. I was doing things that was completely out of character. I was having these voices. And he also described this electrical shock going up his spine. And many people will call that a Kundalini type experience. Mm. And he, he was just being overwhelmed by it. And he said, yeah, I thought I was dying at the time. But the older monks took him aside and said, no, you've got a special gift. And they brought him through an initiation. And eventually he actually went to the Dalai Lama and, and asked if he, he and the Dalai Lama wanted to know if he did want to do this because it's quite a commitment to do and now he is the state oracle. You can Google the Nechung Oracle and watch all this on online mm. now. But 
anyway, that that's the way it started for me. I wasn't seeking anything out and it just came to me. And that's the way this film did. It came to me. Adam, um, we I was doing a short film on meditation with somebody here in Seattle. And she sent me two or three people to interview. And I think Adam was the second person we interviewed. And he had that interesting story. And I said, I'd like to follow you for a while. Mm. And knowing that his symptoms were very similar to the, the shaman I had interviewed. And um, so it just went from there. It ended up taking six years to follow, follow him through everything that happened. And you know from watching the film, his, the course of his life took some ups and downs. Oh, yeah. And while we were following him. Yeah, no, it was it was uh it was heavy to watch. I am. Um, I'm sure I'll keep coming back to the film. I, uh, there's obviously a bunch of specific moments I want to reference and ask you questions about. Um, but I'm interested sort of with your experience with that Nechung Oracle and, and the skepticism that seemed to be sort of front of mind during that experience. I'm I'm curious what happened to that skepticism over time did you maintain it was there a number of shamans or was there a specific incident where you remember that that skepticism <clears throat> being significantly reduced it sounds like by the time you meet adam you're starting to be so interested in his symptoms that it's that's there seems to have you know that that um skepticism seems to have dissipated where you're like oh actually adam might not have even realized it at the time but there might be something to those symptoms there yeah yeah no, yeah. I mean, there were times when there was a big jump <laughs> between my skeptical self and my open self. Like, mm -hmm. wow, this there is something here. And I mean, one specific one was, oh, from the time. So I met the Nechung Oracle in 94. And then in 2001, uh, so how long is that later? That's, you know, seven years. Um, if I did my math right. <laughs> I think it's uh, 94 <laughs> to 2001. I think it's six. Okay. Seven. You're right. Oh, shoot. Wow. Look at that. <laughs> so um, anyway, seven years later, I um, was visiting a tribe on the, the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's a little tribe called the Kalash. Hmm. And there's only about three or 4,000 Kalash people left. And it's a fairly isolated group. Uh, I call it a tribe, but it's a community. Um, everybody knows everybody in this community. And they're surrounded by the culture of Islam but they're all animists. So they have a whole different um, cultural context for their cosmology. They're, they um, are what I would call animists. They believe in nature spirits and they have many nature spirits, especially the mountain spirit that they're interested in. And they have shamans. And I met two of them while I was there. And one of them, so I was there with my 15-year-old son. It was summer, and I wanted to give him an experience of just um, seeing another culture that was very different. And it was he was 15, 
And I, my wife and I kind of wanted to give him a rite of passage type of experience. So hmm. it was summer vacation. And I thought, well, this would be a good place to go. At the time, I thought it was very safe. And by the way, it was two months before 9-11 happened hmm. uh, with the World Trade Centers in New York. But so we were there two months before that. And um, so their shaman, one of their shamans was a guy by the name of John Dooley Khan. And he was a goat herder that lived way up on the mountain. So my son and I got a guide, a 20-year-old guide by the name of Yasir, and we went up the mountain to meet John Dooley Khan. And it took most of the day to get up there. And we got to his camp, which was very, you know, just, he lived in a little rock hut. He had three of his sons living with him. And he sat down for an interview and and he was just very talkative. I mean, he hmm. told us all about it, how his how his episode came on when he was a kid and how his dad, who was a shaman, um, took him through his initiation. He had the same story, thought he was dying, hearing voices, um, very strange um, visions were coming to him and just his personality was different. Uh, and his dad was a little worried about him. But anyway, took him through the initiation, which lasted a year and a half. He was telling us all about that. And then he said, I need to do a ceremony for you in the morning. And I didn't want him to do it because hmm. I had learned, I'd heard from Yasir, if they do a ceremony, they have to kill one of their animals. They they sacrifice one of their animals. And that's the last thing I wanted him to do. And for me and, and my son, I mean, no. And another reason was I had been in Mongolia about seven months before that. And there was a shaman there I was um, interviewing and he wanted to do a ceremony. And I said, sure, go ahead. And, and it turned out very badly for him. It was mm. like spirits didn't like it. And he mm. sort of went into this awful groaning and we were in a, a gur, like a yurt. And he flipped out of the door and, and I was really worried about him. But anyway, everything turned out okay. Mm. But that was another reason I didn't want John Dulican to do this ceremony. Then he, then he said, no, I have to do it. And my spirits demanded. There was no... I, there was no way I could talk him out of it. So in the morning, the way they do it is they start a fire of juniper branches and his sons were sort of orchestrating everything. So they started the fire of juniper branches. They sacrificed the animal. They took the blood from the animal and it was a sheep in this case, not a goat. And they poured the blood over the the juniper branches, and then John Dulican inhaled the smoke, and then he just fell back into his son's arms and just, you know, like collapsed, just much like the uh, Nechung Oracle did. And um, then they carried him into his little rock hut, and that's the last we saw him. 
And, and, you know, he was very talkative when we were interviewing him the day before. But after that, I never heard a word from him. So Mm. I asked Yasir, our translator, did he say anything? uh, And he said, the only thing he said was, your journey will be very difficult, but you will be safe. That was all he said. Mm. So we sort of shrugged our shoulders and said, okay. <laughs> it sounds yeah. general. Anyway. But, but ominous. A, a little on, um, ominous, but I didn't think too much about it. And uh, so Dax, Dax is my son. Dax and I start down the mountain. And I, I'm at that point, I've hired a, a, a driver in a Jeep to take us further up into the Hindu Kush mountains, because there was other groups I wanted to meet along the way. And um, he, got, he got this stomach bug. Just as we were walking down the mountain, we had forgotten to take our water filter with us when we took that hike. But Yasser said, don't worry about it. You're way up on the mountain. The water's completely clean. And so we were drinking the water and we thought we were okay, but Dax picked up a bug. And as we took off in the Jeep to drive further up into the Hindu Kush, he started getting more and more sick and he was mm. dehydrating. He couldn't keep, he had diarrhea. He couldn't keep anything down when he drank. And, um, you know, I had some Cipro, which is a very wide spectrum antibiotic, and I gave him Cipro. That didn't help. Mm. So we were on the road about three days before I really thought, you know, this is serious. And he was getting weak just sitting in the in the Jeep. And we were on this road where we hadn't seen a car all day. And we saw a couple of shacks along the way, but nothing like a, a, a village or anything. And um, our guide, our driver, uh, just said, you know, we're about two days away from Islamabad if we wanted to make a direct dash to try and get there. Um, but that would be probably the nearest real help you could get. And so I was panicking. And on the fourth day, we came around a corner and I saw another one of these shack-like buildings off to the side of the road. And I I just had um, our driver pull over and I took Dax out. He could, he was having a hard time walking at the time mm. and helped him out. And he put him under a tree where there was some shade and some grass. And I ran up to the shack and I thought it would, could have been just a shack for animals. I had no idea. And I just banged on the door and I was just desperate. I thought maybe somebody has some herbs or something. You know, I, I was just grasping at straws. Mm. And I heard somebody rustle inside and I thought, wow, there's somebody here. And the door opens and it's a guy um, wearing glasses, very clean um, chemise. And uh, he said, can I help you? 
<laughs> in English. Really? With an accent. And I, I was shocked, you know. <laughs> I didn't expect to even see anybody. So here's this middle-aged guy looking like a professor saying, can I help you? And it turns out he was a doctor from, Is- from Islamabad who was visiting his mother. Wow. And he said, what, what's, can I help you? And I said, yeah, my son's very ill. He's dehydrated and I need something to help him. And he said, yes, I'm a doctor. Where is he? I said, down under the tree. And so he said, come in and let's um, bring him up. We decided to bring a bed down to him because he was weak. Hmm. And so I helped carry this, this one person bed down there. It wasn't that heavy. But also he had glucose and saline and an IV drip that wow. he happened to have. So this is out in the middle of nowhere. And the chance of <laughs> in that shack having this guy. So, yes, when that happened. And well, anyway, we hooked him up. And in two hours, Dax was fine. Wow. And so those words, your journey will be very difficult, but you will be safe. Sure. Ringing in my head. Kind yeah. Of. And I just thought to myself. You know, um, I've talked to so many of these people. They have these stories. And, the, and yeah, I'm starting to be a believer because, you know, I, I'm now I'm reading about it. In Eliad's book, you know, the anthropologist mm. that went around and studied commons yeah. years ago. And I think I have it right up there. Oh, you do? I wow. think so. Let me okay. check. <clears throat> Yep. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, this is so, this have the you one that got me into it. Oh, okay. <clears throat> you know, um, excuse me one sec. <clears throat> I actually picked that up. Um, I, I forget exactly how I got into this. I, I can't claim to have read the whole thing, but I've read chunks of it because I was. Um, I don't talk about it a lot, but I was writing and I sort of like had a character i was really interested in sort of a a shamanistic character and i was starting to do some research and i read into this so i started to weave some of what i was reading into into what i was writing yeah wow so you're writing fiction i take it yes (laughs) yeah okay all right interesting well so you know a lot of that yeah so that's you know that episode that um, the shamans were telling me about is known as the shamanic sickness. Hmm. And um, so, but yeah, and the fact that every cult and every culture I've been in, and I've been in cultures, shamanic cultures all over the world, and have spent like the last 30 years doing that. And, you know, the fact that they all have this, people that go into altered states of consciousness to go in and gather information or work on the behalf of the person they're trying to heal mm. um, or get the information for the tribe. Um, 
Yeah, I, it's the fact that it's spread throughout the world that means there's something to it. You, you know, something like that wouldn't be in all these different cultures if if there wasn't. And so I, you know, when that happened in Pakistan, it was just like, whoa, you know, mm. there's either this is a very unusual coincidence, which it could have been. Or there is something to this. And hmm. I was I was just thankful at that point that because I thought I was going to lose my son. You know, it was it was serious. Yeah. And, it um, like- but it it just helped open me up. Um, I could get into my whole background, which <laughs> with my spiritual journey that's taking me here. I would but, love that. <laughs> well, it's a long one. But, well, maybe we'll pick it at, at uh, piecemeal as I ask questions, but feel free okay. to, I, I will not interrupt you. Feel free to, I'll try not to at least. But uh, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, if you listen, if you go back and listen to Crazy Wise, the very first interview I did with Adam hmm. said something to the effect then asking him about his first break would happen. It happened when he was 20 years old. And he said, when it first happened, it was very fun and exciting. Mm. It's the first time I felt a part of everything, a part of the universe. I think he said exactly. Mm. And where I was it, it was me. Yeah. And I don't know if you recall that, but I, I do. I remember I remember the, the image of his notebook saying like I squared equals God. I mean, those those images yeah, as he was having, saying that. Yeah. Yeah. He was having all these visions and he was writing stuff down and he said, yeah, where I was it, it was me. And he said, but then I kept going, mm. went way too far and then it got scary. So. Mm. He didn't have anybody around him. The big disadvantage Adam had was he didn't have a mentor. Like almost everybody I talked to had an older shaman, Mm. somebody who had already been through it. Um, They also had a culture that wasn't afraid of hearing voices or having visions Mm. or these different states of you know, disease, I mean, uh, illies, I should say, where you're having personality shifts and you think you're dying and you're frightened. So they didn't have, uh, they didn't, they didn't pathologize that. That was just, okay, this indicates we have a certain type of sensitivity in this Mm. individual and we can use that. We can, that can be valuable to us and then after they've gone through their initiation, the whole community honors them. These people are very honored. Mm. And um, so Adam didn't have any of that. Immediately is you've got a, a chemical imbalance of your brain. It's got to be, you know, we have medications that can help that. You won't be completely normal, but this will get you by, is basically what they say. And um, 
the big problem was, especially with Adam, these drugs have a lot of side effects. Right. And in fact, a person who's on a lifetime of psychoactive medications, many of them have diabetes as a side effect, mm. uh, kidney problems, and some. Uh, and it's estimated that a person on a lifetime of that, if you start when you're in your 20s, your life your lifespan will be shortened by 20 to 25 years. Mm. So you don't get off scot-free taking these medications. So um, they're helpful in a crisis, yes, but as a lifelong solution, uh, it's not too good. Hmm. And so with Crazy Wise, I learned so much more about this whole altered states of consciousness by talking to a lot of people in our culture, which I could easily talk to in our own language. I didn't have sure. a good translator. And yes, so many of them talked about people that have had these experiences some of them navigated it on their own without getting involved with going to the doctor or the psychiatrist, mm. being hauled away in an ambulance or a police car to an emergency room and get mm. shot with medications. Some of them that just sort of wrote it out on their own, they were strong enough to do that. Um, many of them said, I had this feeling, and they had a hard time describing it. It was a sort of ineffable, you know, they would talk about, well, I felt like um, I didn't know where I ended and everything else began, or mm. I felt this where I was, I was everything and I was nothing. They would say things like this. So it's mm. hard to comprehend. But many of them said, I had this feeling of deep, profound connection to everyone and everything. And so many of them talked about if they've not, if they were able to navigate it successfully without getting frightened, um, they came out of it the other end with a lot more clarity in their direction, a lot more meaning, a lot more purpose, a lot more compassion. Um, so it, it, it was interesting. You know, just being able to meet all these people that have been through these spontaneous, what I am looking at now and thinking of as a spontaneous opening to mm. another way of accessing information. There's a fascinating segment of the film that almost is something of a montage where you have all those people come in and say, uh, what they were diagnosed with and sort of what pills they were on. And, um, it, and I think you then segue sort of into a, um, an exploration of the, the DSM five or DSM more generally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was, that was a fascinating segment to see so many very different people, but sober, clear eyed, seemingly sober and seemingly clear eyed people sort of laugh at all the things that they were diagnosed with almost you know, have some sort of fun with it. It was interesting. Oh, I remember the guy you're talking about. Yeah. I can't remember his name right now. There, there were a couple of them, but there was one who, yeah, who, who had a. So the DSM, 
for the audience, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of um, Mental Health Diseases. And um, it was published first in, I think, 52, mm. 1952. And it's gone through five different versions. And it's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. And the 1952, I think there were 150 disorders. By the time we get up to um, 2013, when DSM-5 came out, there are now 350 disorders. There's things in there like sibling rivalry disorder. Hmm. So in other words, there we've gotten to the point where we're pathologizing normal human experience. Where do you think that comes from? You, you obviously spoke to a lot of doctors during this and there were, there was that the one gentleman who I think was part of the publication of the DSM four and then seemed yeah. critical, or I think was stated as being critical of the DSM five. What do you account this proliferation of disorders to? Well, that's, that's what we asked the, the guy you were talking about is Alan Francis. He's a mm. psychiatrist who headed the team that wrote DSM-4. And then when DSM-5 came out with, you know, another 50 um, disorders, um, he just wrote a book called Saving Normal. Mm. <laughs> he said, this is going way too far, even though DSM-4, which he headed, it had expanded on the amount of disorders by an order of 50 hmm. <laughs> from DSM-3. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's recognized in the, in the profession that, yes, that this is, and it's been highly criticized by European psychiatrists, the American DSM, and... Uh, but the, the guy that you're thinking of, he, he, he said something to the effect, you know, um, when I was diagnosed, it was the year of DSM-3, there were 12 personality disorders. And he said, I had eight of them. Hmm. And he starts laughing. And he yeah. said, perfectionists in me wanted to try and get all 12. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> That's yeah. I mean, what a tragically funny thing. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. That's so I'm so curious what you um, casually or otherwise think of the trickle down effects of that proliferation of disorders. What does that do to a society where you do seemingly have a, a name of a disorder for seemingly normal things like sibling rivalry, for example, not to make straw man out of that? Yeah, well, Think about it. It's just, you know, if you start pathologizing and especially following up with heavy medications, which are mainly heavy downers, I mean, mm. heavy tranquilizers. And, and, you know, well, you see it today and it's, it's the tragedy. How many kids, young kids are put on Ritalin are, you know, if they have ADHD, if they can't concentrate. And Ritalin um, is a, it's like speed. 
It's an amphetamine. <laughs> it's like an amphetamine. And, and the thing is, to concentrate in school, it takes energy. And if you're low on energy, either because of a poor diet or lack of sleep or whatever that might be affecting the kid, um, you can give them speed and they'll start concentrating. Sure. You know, um, but it's, it's, it's not the treatment of choice, if you know what's going on. And sure. the, the number of young kids and kids in college that are on antidepressants is shocking. I mean, I first started coming across it because I was taking young kids or college age kids on trips that I would go on to visit these communities, these tribal communities. And we were helping them um, make movies. So I would take kids that were interested in photography and adults interested in photography. And we'd go into a community and, and work usually with a group of teenagers in helping them make a movie about a social or environmental issue that was happening in their tribe or in their community. And, you know, a lot of the people that signed up for our trips that were in college, especially the young women, I remember, were on psychoactive meds for depression. And, mm. and it was like, you know, 20% at the time. Mm. And now I know that number is higher, but it was like, whoa, this isn't right. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested, if you don't mind jumping around a little bit, this has come up a few times and maybe we can ground this in, in first Adam's story, but I'm really interested. And of course, you mentioned yourself doing this. I'm really interested in um, the silent retreats, uh, their place. I mean, their place in Adam's story and, and maybe in yours. Uh, what do you think is the relationship between um, I guess more generally like psychosis and silence or healing and silence? Like, What is it do you think about those silence, silent retreats that seem to help Adam so profoundly in that moment? And I, and I guess there was a little um, I would have had to sort of like keep track, but it seemed like the silent retreat for Adam worked for a period of time, but then he wasn't allowed back to that retreat center. If I remember that correctly. Yeah. Um, okay. um, so there's a few questions there. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It started coming together for me in that um, meditation is another way to open up. It's a, it's a way to shut down the chattering mind you know, we're thinking all the time. We're taught to. <laughs> to survive, we have to get through school and concepts and things. Um, to shut that down purposefully, either in meditation, where you're actually trying to stay in the present moment with your breathing or concentrating on some object in, the, in your visual field or whatever, Anything to shut down that constant thinking that's going on can open you up to another dimension of information. 
And um, so you can become more intuitive, for instance, or you can become more in the present. And that in itself um, is an opening. And it's very similar to a spontaneous opening that we call psychosis or a psychotic break. Interesting. And so um, without getting into the, because I've really interviewed a lot of the neuroscientists doing work on studying that opening process. Hmm. They're studying it through psychedelics. And FMR. I was I was wondering if that might come up. And, yeah, and fMRI imaging. So they can give somebody a psychedelic, which, by the way, shuts down that chattering mind. And mm. uh, it's kind of the same process. And they can see what part of the brain is active when that happens. And uh, but anyway, there seems to be, you know, and when LSD was first discovered by Albert Hoffman in 1938, he was a chemist working for Sandoz and company, pharmaceutical company. They were trying to find an ergot that, um, that would um, help the uterus contract. I think that was it. It was something to do with women's health in childbirth. Anyway, he got some under his fingernails and put them on this trip. And he started looking at it. But when it was first discovered, he called it, and the scientists starting to investigate it, LSD, um, he called it psychotomimetic, which hmm. means mimicking a psychosis. Hmm. And it, it, it does, in a way. And um, so anyway, now the, the neuroscientists, I would interviewing a couple of years ago or at the Imperial College in London, Robin Carhart Harris is leading that team there, or was, he's moved to the University of California now in San Francisco, which is my alma, my alma mater. Hmm. Anyway, um, they started looking at this and, and looking at a network in the brain where, um, let me back up and uh, this gets off into the neuroscience. You may well, it, not, sound, it sounded okay. like you were going to reference the default mode network, if I wasn't mistaken. Yeah. Yes. Do you know about the default mode? Network? Yeah. It's just, I mean, only that it exists. And, and I was curious if you were referencing that there. It, the default mode network, um, I guess, seems to be, and this is where I tap out on my neuroscience, <laughs> but it, it seems to be the the root of that chattering mind that you were referring to. So like, what is our automatic default setting for how yeah. we operate and how our mind sort of, sort of chatters and that may, perhaps it's psychedelics, perhaps it's mindfulness or meditation, but w when something suppresses it, that chattering mind, it's, it seems to be through fMRI. Um, yeah. Yep. Through fMRI imaging, it seems to be that default, what they're calling the default mode network. Well, yeah. Yeah, you've got bits and pieces it's of it. <laughs> so, so the default... Correct me as you see fit. So I'll just start by saying, when I went to school a thousand years ago, so I, I actually went to dental school Interesting. at UC Med Center, 
Um, the brain, you know, what we knew of the brain was uh, you looked at the brain and you knew where the auditory centers are, were, where the visual centers were, mm. where the motor centers were that drive your muscles. Um, and it was called the Penfield map because um, a surgeon called Penfield, I don't know his first name, but he, he started taking and stimulating part of the brain. You know, somebody had their brain exposed. Hmm. You can, with a person completely conscious, to touch part of their brain and they'll tell you what's happening. Wow. The brain has no nerve ending. So it, it, you could operate on the brain while a person's awake and it'd be fine. Wow. But anyway, they mapped the brain and it was this Penfield map where here's the auditory center, here's the visual center, here's so on and so forth. Well, now fMRI imaging, functional magnetic imaging, is, you know, that big machine you have to go into that's sure. the, the huge magnet. And yeah, I've interviewed some people who do fMRI feedback therapy. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, what it does is it allows you to see the blood flow in the brain and where the blood is flowing. And so they're able to start not only mapping, you know, with a, with a pen in different parts of the brain, hmm. but they're starting to see where different parts of the brain work together to do a, some of these abstract functions. Interesting. And, and so the default mode network, and they call it that because that's what our brain does when we're just sitting there resting. We're just sort of reminiscing about the past or sure. thinking about the future. Um, and if you give somebody, so the network is part of the prefrontal cortex, part of the posterior cingulate cortex, and part of the brainstem, the limbic system, the older part of the brain, they're working together. They seem to, those three areas seem to, when you give somebody a psychedelic, seem to depress and hmm. shut down. And the, the thing about the limbic system, the older part of the brain, it stores emotional memory especially like childhood memories. And it's sort of a gatekeeper. If the memory, if the experience is too intense, hmm. that you cannot handle it as a kid, you can have it there and it, it, that system will keep it from coming up into consciousness because it'll be too disruptive. Under a psychedelic, that gate can open and you can get childhood memories coming up. Mm. And in Adam's case in the film, what happened to him in his fourth, yeah, it was his fourth um, Vipassana retreat where it happened, where all of a sudden he became aware of when he was molested by his granddad. Mm. And um, he went to his parents to tell him after he got out of that retreat. And they said, no, you've been crazy long enough and mm. you're not going to disrupt the whole family. And they didn't believe him. And that's when he really 
spiraled down. Because when I met him, he was this, you know, normal, really bright kid. Mm. And, and within three weeks of that, he was a mess. He lost his job. He lost his little cabin he was living on, on this beautiful lake. And he mm. was homeless, living in a car. It just happened that quick. I'd never seen anybody fall apart that quickly. You know, he lost his two main support systems, the Vipassana, because they told him, we can't handle you here. Um, that's the problem with Vipassana retreats. Um, they What's don't that? have the staffing to handle those openings that can happen, mm. uh, you know, with a, um, a long-term meditation retreat. And they do happen. I've yeah. been several people that have opened up that way and had childhood trauma come up. Anyway, I'm rambling and going all over the place here, but... No, uh, I appreciate it. I, I'm mindful of the time, but if you, if you don't mind, I'm curious about Adam and who was the other... Um, the African-American woman? Yes, who that you call Akaya. Akaya. So say her name one more time, I'm sorry. Akaya, E-K-H-A-Y-A. Uh, with with Adam and Akaya, there were both um, there were both stories of of sexual abuse. Correct? Yeah, it just uh, happened that way. And I, some people thought, well, why did you plan to have just people with sexual abuse in there? I didn't know when I started filming both of those people um, that I thought would make good characters for the film. Sure. I didn't know about their history of sexual abuse. Interesting. I didn't use them on that basis at all. And and I guess if you don't, I'm going to just put a pin in the beginning of that premise there, but, or the beginning of that, but they're one of the, uh, like maybe the thesis, a possible perceived thesis of the documentary could be something like, look how other Look how other um, cultures and and groups and tribes handle very similar psychotic breaks, psychotic openings, um, whatever. Yeah. Mental states, whatever you want to call it, uh, and sort of look how we do it. And, you know, there's the shamanic path or this sort of this this Western path, whatever you want to sort of call that. Right. But what's interesting to me is both of the people featured in the film were the victims of sexual abuse. And I'm curious what you think. It's not clear to me whether or not one facilitated the other. Um, that is to say, did the abuse have anything to do with the psychotic episode or the psychotic break or that mental state? Or was it just a coincidence that they would have already sort of, in Eliade's term, maybe had that shamanic call, that sort of psychotic episode, and also happened to be the victims of sexual abuse. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. Um, I look at it this way. Um, when these openings happen, and you know, when I was a kid, I'm 80 years old now, so that's a long time ago. So when, I, seem it. <laughs> when I was a kid, they were called identity crises, hmm. having an identity crisis. Interesting. And, and I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, that label, mm. in that 
It's when your sense of self gets disrupted in some way. And by the way, the most common place it happens is to college freshmen, especially males. Interesting. They get, that's when these breaks often happen. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, if you are a good student, you get into a great college or university and you get a bad grade. Mm. And all of a sudden you've been the top kid in your school at back home and all of a sudden, boom. And maybe your girlfriend dumps you or your boyfriend dumps you. Mm. You get a few blows to your identity like that. That can do it. That can. So it's it's like. And I'll just back up a little bit to the default mode network. One of the things the neuroscientists are discovering is that sense of self our sense of our identity, the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Mm. And, you know, the Buddhists have always said that who you think you are is something separate from everything else is an illusion. Mm. Well, that sense of self that we've built up through our language and through the stories and through the events that have happened to us give us a certain idea of who we think we are. Mm. If that, that sense of self is evidently deeply a part of the default mode network in some way. It's what the neuroscientists call a predictive code. Mm. And we look at reality through a lens that they call a predictive code. And if mm. you go online and listen to Anil Seth, he's a good one. Just listen to his TED Talks, A-N-I-L Seth. He's a neuroscientist out of Sussex. In England, and um, they'll go into much deeper. I'm just, you know, I'll butcher it if I just keep rambling like this. But anyway, that sense of self gets disrupted, and um, uh, you can open. You can have an opening. And um, so to answer your question, um, when... When many people have these spontaneous openings, and it's like nothing they've ever experienced before. I've never experienced one. I've just talked to hundreds of people who have. Mm. Um, When that happens, um, you can get frightened very easily. When Adam says, and then I went way too far, and then it got scary. Mm. He had this feeling of being a part of everything. I was it. It was me. His right. sense of self kind of disappeared. As right. He, right? Yeah, and, it's interesting. I'm thinking about what might have been scary about that, how that could possibly go too far. And it sounded like there were, there were moments where he was like, that dissolution of self was kind of nice, but he was still like, it was, I was it and it was me. There was still like an I. But if that totally dissolves and there's absolutely no self, right, then that could probably be terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. If you don't know what's happening. Right. You know, if you take a hit of LSD and Mm. you, you know, well, this is going to be over in six or seven hours. It's not as scary. It still can be very scary. (laughs) Sure. And um, anyway, so where was I going? Oh, yeah. So if you have that sense of self disrupted, 
and you get this opening and it's very I mean, the feeling of being connected and at one and you no longer have this fear of being isolated and separate. You're all, mm. it's all, it's a, it, evidently it's a wonderful feeling until, you know, I talked to so many um, individuals that said, when I started trying to explain it to my parents or my lover or my mm. best friend and they got frightened, mm. sounds weird. You know, you're talking about something, I'm everything, but I'm nothing. And they're going, huh? Mm. And especially a parent, you know, get a call. Your son's here in the emergency room and he's talking funny and he's sure. And, and, um, and so when you're in that state of being open, you're open to everything. Mm. And if you have somebody around you in fear, especially somebody who loves you, that fear is translated and the ego that had disappeared also becomes inflamed and it becomes, you know, fighting for its life in a way. Mm. And then you go into those wow, states of paranoia or mm. illusions of grandeur where you think you're the second coming because you know all this, that no one else knows. Sure. And um, so it, it can go into those pathological states of mind very easily mm. unless you have somebody with you that knows what's happening and can and can um handle it from that perspective interesting it reminds me almost in some way of the work of william james i think the variety of religious experience mm, mm. have you it read seems that? oddly reminiscent of so many um i'm sorry you said what You've read that? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's on the other bookshelf. I'd go get it, but I oh. haven't. And, and I, I remember thinking that's it. That sounds like the root of so many religious traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. Many religions were founded by people that go into that state. Yeah. And have those. I mean, I was part of a really, I, I was raised a Mormon hmm. and the head of the Mormon church was a kid by the name of, Joseph Smith, who sure. went in the woods and prayed and had this big vision. I assume he had one of these experiences. I don't know for sure, but. Yeah, that's but, interesting. I've heard yeah. it also described as sort of like a cosmic consciousness. I think yeah. that might have been Alan, Alan Watts. I'm aware of the time. I want to ask one more question if you can afford it. Um, I think when the, when the documentary began and I was watching the film, mm. there was a bit of a very interesting process for me watching it where. Uh, your voice was the voice of the narrator. Uh, and as the film progressed, it, you know, there was a, I don't want to say clinical, but there was a, there was a distance between you and the, the subjects and the content. There were two turning points, at least that were really obvious to me. Mm. There was the phone call from Hawaii when Adam had been jumped. Mm. And I realized, you know, obviously you would have had to have been really connected before this, but I realized in that moment how close you would have been for him to have called you in a crisis like that. Yeah. And then there was this incredible shot. You know, I was talking to you, you're so engrossed in these ideas. I forget that, you know, that the technicality of the film, there's this awesome shot where you're in his car mm. and there's the in the car shot, but then there's this great outside the car shot where the, the frame is just kind of framed by the top of the sky. And then this kind of warehouse in the background and the, 
car is perfectly centered. It's very cool. And you're in there just sort of facing each other. It was really clear through the windshield. But it was in that shot, too, that I thought, oh, there's Phil just in the car with Adam. <laughs> and you'd obviously been interacting with it throughout the film. But I'm I'm really curious. And I became really curious in those two mm-hmm. frames. Um, what was that like getting really close to Adam while you're also making an argument that we need community? I'm sure. Did it ever put a strain on you? Was there ever a moment of doubt? Uh, that you maybe were taking on more than you could have handled. And yeah. and I'm wondering what your relationship is like now with Adam, if, if it exists. Yeah, it does. Um, but he's living, yeah, he's gone through a lot of changes since that film. And mm. he's living in a very remote part of northern Washington here, up in what they call the Okanagan Valley, mm. by himself in a cabin, a 10 by 20 cabin, uh, with his dog and, mm. and, uh, he's doing much better. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's doing well, but the question was, uh, what was my relationship? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like getting, getting to be really close to him and possibly being scared in moments for him, or maybe yeah. Yeah. feeling that you were getting too close or in too deep. I yeah. imagine it would, I think there was a thesis in the film like, hey, these people need community. They need to be accepted. And yet I imagine it's really hard. There was a moment where you were really soberly accepting everything he was saying. And you could tell he was getting more comfortable and opening up. And the things he was saying would alarm, I think, some people. Were there ever moments where you were like you were trying to suppress the alarm in your own head? What was that like? Yeah. Yeah, there was. There was. Yeah. Um, so. It starts off with me just meeting Adam. He's sent to me because he's a meditator and, and he's got an interesting story. He cut off all his meds all at once instead of a Pasana retreat. That in itself is incredible. Sure. Anybody listening to this that's on meds, there's heavy withdrawal issues getting off meds. Very dangerous to cut them off all at once. Mm. Yeah, it's not recommended. So don't go out and cut them off all at once and do a Vipassana. It's very unusual. But for some reason, it stabilized him. It was unusual. So it starts there, my relationship with him. And then the next four months later, he has that fourth meditation retreat where the images of him being molested by his granddad come up. Mm. And then it takes a whole different course. All of a sudden, this bright young kid working at Whole Foods grocery store loses his job, loses his house, his li- has to live in his car, mm. um, and his physicalness changes, mm. you know, just starts looking like a homeless person. And on top of that, um, he goes over to Hawaii. Somebody offered him a place over. By the way, Adam had a community at this soul food bookstore. A bunch sure. of kids in a similar situation as he was in start hanging out together. And, and so one of his friends, and Adam makes friends just like that. One of his friends offers him a place to stay on Maui and Hawaii. And so he 
heads over to, sells his car, heads over to Hawaii, and ends up homeless on the beach when the, the whole deal fell through. Hmm. So um, he's over there living on the beach, and he ends up getting beat up and almost killed. Hmm. That's when he calls me. Yeah. And, you know, I had gone over there and I had filmed him while he was in Hawaii uh, a little bit. But then we said, well, we'll just stay in touch. Uh, I'll I'll record you every time you call me. So anytime you called, I'd start recording. And that one call came in and he told me about being beat up. He was in mm. the hospital and his jaw was literally broken in half. He said the gang tried to kill him. There's a very big stigma against the homeless in Hawaii. Anyway, hmm. um, so I'm getting involved with him. I had been before, you know, this making a film isn't cheap. You have to raise a lot of money. And so sure. we're in the middle of this. We did a Kickstarter to finance it. And we're in the middle of this. And all of a sudden, you know, this is happening. And um, so anyway, uh, I send him a ticket to come home. I call you. So I'm an ex-dentist, so I can call his his oral surgeon over there in the hospital and talk to him. I say, what's happened? He told me what type of fracture it was. And he, hmm. they kicked out all his back teeth. You can imagine what it takes to kick out a molar in the back. Oh, yeah. And he was totally beat up. And I said, well, I talked to the oral surgeon. He says, yeah, we're going to have to release him from the hospital tomorrow. And I said, where will he go? He says, he'll probably go back on the beach. And he yeah. said, it won't be pretty because the gang will probably finish him off. He can't even open his mouth. His mouth is wired shut. Yeah, it's wired yeah. shut. And so I, <clears throat> I send him a ticket to come home immediately. Sure. And, wow. and so anyway... He he's just I don't know. He he's also popping pills at that point, you know, the pain meds. He was just like a whole different person. But a little bit after that, he went into a deep dive and mm -hmm. really became paranoid. He's paranoid about me. Phil, you're gonna make all this money off of me. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I always say that was probably the most delusional I ever. <laughs> thought of him you do not make money on a documentary unless you're very very lucky um anyway he was really paranoid about us uh, as a team my partner and i and our our film team and he said he called me at one point and said i, I want to go um for a walk with you in the woods come on over. I want to go for a walk and talk with you. And just before that, I'd taken him to an organization to get some housing for him, um, Sound Mental Health here in Seattle. And when they were interviewing him, uh, the woman's it's in the film. She's yeah, yeah, right, I remember not that. even looking at him, typing away. Have you ever had thoughts of hurting yourself or anybody else? And he says, yes. And she says, do you have a weapon? And he said, I am a weapon. I've got a black belt in karate. Do you remember that? I don't remember the black belt in karate part, but I do remember. Yeah, I remember her typing and yeah. I remember that shot. And I remember him saying. I thought the emphasis was, yeah, like on hurting other people. Yeah. 
And he said, any infraction, anything that comes my way, I, I go and dirt. Yeah. And anyway, yeah, I had to sneak that shot. You, mm. I snuck a lot of shots I got for that film. And <clears throat> so he's calling me to go for a walk in the woods. And it, our relationship isn't good at that point. He doesn't trust me. He thinks sure. I'm exploiting him. So now and you're so, nervous. Mm. And so we go for a walk and I'm just, you know, feeling. And he, he just said, Phil, do you think this film is going to hurt me or help me? And I, I was having those thoughts myself. Mm. You know, here's this kid putting his life on the line out for the public to see. Mm. And I feel trapped into it because I have 700 Kickstarter backers wanting a film. Sure. And I'm having thoughts of, you know, this is getting where the places he's going into right now are who wants to have that part of their life exposed. And I just, I broke down at that point. And I said, Adam, I don't know. I really don't know. Mm. Uh, I hope people will see this and, and see your courage and see, you know, your humanity and courage. Adam is a very compassionate guy. And I, and that comes across in the film. And immediately when he saw me kind of breaking down, mm. put his arm around me, he said, oh, don't worry, Phil, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. Mm. Um, this is the only thing I can be doing right now to, to, to help in the world. Mm. And, um, and then we bonded at that point, and it was fine from then on. Mm. So it was all the things I'd been taught by all the experts I <laughs> interviewed. It said, when you're with somebody, you know, the thing about our relationship that made it work is I was there just to ask questions. I, can't, I met with them every two or three weeks, and it was just, what's happening, Adam? And it wasn't, I wasn't there to fix him. Mm. I wasn't here there to give him good ideas on how he should behave or if he should stop drinking beer or smoking pot. Mm. I was just there. What's happening now? Mm. And, um, and he said, that's what I needed. That's all I needed was an unbiased person to talk to. Mm. And, and, so, yeah, we were really bonded until he went into that deep dive of paranoia. Um, and I wanted to say something else. The other, you, you asked me something that keyed me on something about our relationship. It just... Hmm. Maybe alarms in your head going feel like you maybe were getting too close or you couldn't handle it or no it was just ah, it's gone hmm. <laughs> may come back tonight yeah. sometime but yeah it was a it was a, a, quite an experience um going through that with him and uh um 
Yeah, I, I wanted to help them in every way. But, you know, the thing when you're doing a documentary, you're supposed to be a fly on the wall. Mm. So taking them to find housing, <laughs> sending them tickets to fly home, breaking all the rules of a documentary. <laughs> but, I mean, you, I, I couldn't help it. Sure. You know? Mm. And I, 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 maybe it was his compassion. Adam is was born. His dad says it in the beginning clips. Um, he was born with compassion. He he just naturally has it. People pick up on it. Hmm. And when he was living in his cabin before, before this whole thing happened with his the image of his granddad molesting him, when he was in that cabin, some guy he drives home at night. He finds a guy breaking into his house. Hmm. and and he goes up to the guy and it's a heroin addict he's strung out he's in withdrawals and adam makes friends with him lays him down and does some sort of ceremony for him and and hmm. so anyway i asked adam can i call the guy you know, he tells me about this thing happening. And he said, yeah, and here's his number. I called the guy and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come over and interview with you. Um, but if when you call on Wednesday, if no one answers, you know, things didn't go well for me in court. <laughs> oh, wow. I did call him back and he evidently went to jail. Oh, but wow. what he told me was, he said, you know, that kid, you know, I don't know what he did. He laid me down. He put some rocks on my chest and did a couple of prayers. <laughs> huh. And I was totally strung out. And I got up. I felt great. It was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> he said, is that kid some sort of shaman or something? <laughs> and you're like, that's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah, wow. it was funny. But yeah, That's amazing. And, and he ended up being Facebook friends with the gang that tried to kill him. Hmm. Yeah. That's, wow. that's Adam. Wow. And, you know, the old question about will this film help me or hurt me? Um, I don't know how many people all want to ask, how's Adam doing? Is yeah. he doing all right? And, and uh, you know, so. Hmm. A girlfriend saw the movie and came out and they lived together for about seven months. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So it, was a, it was a trip for all of us. <laughs> yeah. For me, for me included just last night. I mean, I can't thank you enough for going on that five year and more journey just to make yeah. that. To Tell enjoy the audience life. how you get a hold of the film, how they can see the film. It's on Gaia, if they want to watch it on Gaia or. They can go to the website. Awesome. And I, I could definitely include the link to your website and to the film Great. on the description. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time, so I'm not going to ask. I'm going to uh, suppress any instinct to ask any more questions, uh, okay. but I pr could probably talk to you for hours. All I would right. be fascinated if if after you take some time, if you ever want to speak again, I would love to talk to you about what you're working on and learning now. So, okay. Take some time, <laughs> get right. a break from me. And then if you ever if you're ever interested in it again, I'd love to pick up right there. 
Okay. All right, Kevin. Awesome. Phil, you're thank you so much for this. Too. Yeah, you're so awesome. Up. Thank you. Have a great night. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.